Well, welcome. Glad you guys are with us this morning on a holiday weekend. It's a little dreary for the 4th of July. And I, I can't get used to it. I grew up in the South, and summer starts in like April, right? And you know it's summer because everything's coated in about a half inch of yellow pollen. And the temperature's above 85 until probably late October that summer. Here is so different and it's depressing to my soul, right? That, that it will give you, like it will tease you in May just a little bit and then June becomes this really gloomy month and, and, and then suddenly, magically, on the 5th of July, it's summer, right? And so I'm just like, I'm, my heart's in anticipation right now for summer and I'm like, please, Lord, I want the sun. And, and so as I, as I think about this weekend, I think about, you know, um, we're going to be at the lake Tuesday with family and friends and hanging out and waiting for the fireworks to go off. And um, if, you're, if you're cruising to the lake on the 4th of July, chances are you're going to be playing some oldies, right? You got a good playlist? Yeah, anybody? Oldies? Going to be going to be throwing back to the 19 what? 90s is oldies. Way to go, truck. Right? 1970s? I'm going back to the 60s, the 50s and 60s for the oldies that, that resonate with my heart, except there's some 80s music that I really... Not, I wasn't alive then, okay? Some of you is like, really? He's that old? No. No. I was... No. I won't tell you when I was born, but no. <laughs> but this is what Psalms... Psalms really are the oldies of God's people, right? They are the... The going back those songs of remembering the good old days when God interacted with his people. They're not all good old days. Some of these songs recall times of trouble and hardship, but God's always there and he's always present. And, and so it's good for us as part of our summer series to go back into the Psalms as God's covenant people standing in the flow of redemptive history to go back to some of these moments and let them resonate with our hearts. So we've been in Psalm 19. We launched with that. It's, it's a song of revelation. God has revealed himself, right, through the creation and through the word. And then we went last week to Psalm 139, and that is a song of life. It's a song about how God is this magnificent, marvelous, majestic, infinite, omnipotent God who's intimately involved in the creation of life in the womb. Such an amazing psalm. And then this week, we're going to be on Psalm 126. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 126. And let me give you just a little bit of historical context of the psalm here as we move uh, towards this. This uh, the captivity of Israel in Babylon was finalized. In other words, uh, there were three sieges of Jerusalem. And the last one was in 586 B.C. And then, and then they were there for 70 years. And it was because they'd been disobedient to God's commandments, and especially the commandment, because the land was on lease, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a land grant. It's God's property, and he let Israel use it. And he said, if you're going to use it, this is the way you use it. You let the land lay fallow, let it have a Sabbath every seventh year. The land needs to rest. And they didn't do that. They just, it, it, was, it was why he gave a Sabbath is a, is a sign of faith. It's our enacting faith to say, I don't have to be in the rat race seven days a week. I can take a day and rest while all the pagans toil because God's going to provide for me and I trust him. And in the same way, it's like, okay, so then let the land have a rest too. And trust me that even in that seventh year, whatever comes up that you haven't worked for, that you put away will be enough to sustain you. I'll take care of you. Just let, let the land rest, right? And they, and they didn't have the faith to do that. They toiled and they, they planted and harvested and uh, year after year after year, every seventh year, they would not let that happen. And so God said, I'm going to send you into captivity so that the land gets a break, really, 
right? And so they've been in Babylon in captivity for 70 years, and, and then they're coming back into the land. And so this Psalm 126 is in a, in a section of the Psalms we call the Psalms of Ascent. And Ascent, of course, means to do what? To go up. Right, So as you're going to the temple to worship as a Jew, and there are seven feasts every year that you, you attend. There are four that are mandatory, three that are, you know, you don't really have to go. You should go, right? But it, it, when you're going to the temple to worship, you're ascending to the temple. You're coming up through the city to Mount Zion, which is the, the throne of God, as it were, and, and you're coming up into his presence. And so one of the things they did, Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, don't be hasty when you come up into the presence of God. It's not the kind of thing you run into and just be like, can't wait to get to the temple. I'll, you know, I'm going to beat you there. Right? And, and so what they did with the steps is they made them of varying heights and depths. So, like, if you build a house today or you, you build a building, your steps have to be uniform to code, right? Not the temple, right? That, this one's three feet deep and 21 inches high, and the next one's two feet deep and six inches high. And, and it's, it's varied like that so that as you ascend, you're being very thoughtful about what you're doing. You're watching your steps, right? You can't just come up without being somewhat circumspect about what you're doing. And I appreciate that, right? So as the people of God would come up together to worship God, these are the songs that they would sing together as they ascended to the temple. This is why they're called Psalms of Ascent. And often what they would do is they would do, it would be a call and response. Now, I, I grew up in the South and I've had the opportunity to be in several black churches in the South growing up. And nobody does that better than black gospel churches in the South, right? And I won't even try to... to show you what that sounds like because I would just, it would fall so utterly flat of the reality. But so if you can imagine being part of a throng of thousands of people coming up to the temple in the first century and you're hearing someone over the crowd go, uh, the Lord's people said, God is faithful. And then, and then the other part of the crowd goes, he is faithful through all generations. And, and they're singing this tune. Everybody knows the tune, right? Everybody grows up singing the Psalms and they're back and forth to one another in the crowd of singing together and worshiping as they go up into the temple. It's an amazing uh, image of what it means to, to come into the place of worship with the people of God. So the, the rising in intensity and glory and majesty until finally they're standing there in the sanctuary of the Lord, lifting up their hearts and their hands and their voices in praise to God, having ascended into his presence. It's just, it's glorious. And so that's the context of Psalm 126, right? So let's go to the text and look at this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then they they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me just stop and pray for us. Lord, there's so much there, so much imagery, so much intentionality in your word and, and a bunch of metaphors that we can't relate to because we're not an agrarian culture. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to see and receive, to hear and to understand your word and then your Holy Spirit would take it further and apply it to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we ask, amen. 
So let's go back to verses one through three. So when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy, and they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So, so you can look at this, verses 1 through 3, there's kind of three subsets here. It's, it's deliverance, delight, and decision, right? He says, the deliverance, the, the Lord restored our fortunes. We were in captivity, we were in Babylon, and he brought us back into the land. And he delivered us out of our situation. He delivered us out of captivity. And the response was delight. Our mouths are filled with laughter. We're so, we're so just rocked by God's goodness. All we can do is just laugh and rejoice, and our tongues just shouting goodness of God. And then the decision that comes about here is the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. It's, it's a, I'm going to make a declaration. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to enjoy that. He had restored them as like a dream come true. And then they're laughing and they're, and they're filled with joy. You know, Spurgeon was once criticized for putting too much laughter in his sermons. And um, the, the woman who, in particular, one instance, he, he dealt with her head on. And, and this one woman said it was frivolous. It was lacking in gravitas. And his reply to this particular woman was, my good lady, if you only knew how much I actually restrain myself. Right? And, and I, I love that. Because this psalm shows us that not only that laughter and joy go together, but God and joy and laughter go together. Right? The church is a place of laughter and joy. And um, this psalm was written to help you discover the secret of joy. If joy is being restored, then what is being restored like? What is being redeemed like? It says we were like those who dream. What, what, what sort of dream? Uh, and he describes a dream. Our mouths are filled with laughter. And so laughter is not this, um, and here in the passage, it's not this little, <laughs> you know, not the positive little chortle in, in, in pro- proper company. It's, it's not the snicker behind your the hand, you know. It, this is like totally LOL, like rolling in the floor, laughing, mouth wide open, you look obnoxious, you're laughing so hard, right? Um, wide mouth laughter really is how you would describe this, right? Um, I'm trying to think of what doesn't accomplish that. Most of the marquee signs outside of churches that attempt to elicit laughter don't. They get groans instead, so that's not going to work for us. Um, uh, yeah, just think about that. Why, why don't we laugh more in church? Why is there just this overwhelming sense of joy? I would mean, just describe for you, painted this picture of the people of God ascending to the temple and their hearts are just bubbling over with joy. They're coming up into the presence of God. And this is what happens most Sunday mornings. Not, not, not you, you guys, because um, I watch you come in and you guys are smiling and excited and I'm, I'm glad. But in a lot of churches I've been in, people just kind of come on Sunday morning. I'm going to sit down in my chair. It's real quiet, real reserved. Right? I mean, we should be the kind of boisterous. I've, I, as a worship pastor for many years, I said this to other congregations where I led worship. I'm like, you know, if this was a Seahawks game, you guys would be, I mean, the noise level would be super high, right? I mean, not to, not to really like bring any kind of conviction on anybody or anything like that. Um, but the, the, we, we, we get excited about the things that we worship. Um, so w- wide mouth laughter, right? 
Um, I love that. And, and they're giving the credit to the Lord, right? The affirmation of God's goodness here in verses 1 through 3. So praise is a decision of the heart to give full credit to God for every good thing and every blessing that you receive. It is an act of the will. And here's the thing. When you do it regularly, when you enact your will to give praise to God, it becomes a habit of joy. It becomes a habit. It it stops being, it, it doesn't stop being an act of the will, but it stops being a conscious decision. And then you find yourself just, joy is just coming out of you because you've developed that as a way of life. Right, And and so we got to give credit to God and affirm his goodness. And then verse 4, look at this. So so the the dream, right? And then then the dream was a good dream. Wow. So Lord, do that. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams and the Negev. So here's the prayer. Here's the prayer. And fortune here doesn't mean luck or chance. It's not saying, yeah, we, we played the gaming tables. I finally got lucky. I've been pulling the slot machine for like three hours. I finally hit it. It's not saying um, I've been down on my luck and I finally got a lucky break. The word fortune here is a, is a Hebrew, it's like a mirror to the word restore. So when the Lord restored our fortunes, it means something like this. When God restored us to a restored situation, right? He restored us to our restored place. When we get here to verse 4 as a parallel, restore our fortunes, O Lord, means restore us to that restored situation, God. And it matters because these people were, they were having this dream. Um, and we, we think, man, we talk about that phrase. Let's go there for a minute. Live in the dream. What does that mean in our culture? Live in the dream means wealth, right? Nice car, nice house. Fame, fortune, right? Fortune in the the money sense, right? Um, vacation home, luxury SUV. The reality is the people who think that that's fortune are missing the real joy because joy is not financially living well or looking good. Joy is about being restored in the presence of God and brought back to the place you were designed and purposed to be in relationship with him. And so he says, like streams in the Negev, right? That's an that, idiom or a word picture that we just don't even... Like, what does that mean, streams in the Negev? I don't know. So so imagine a part of the... So Israel is an arid, dry land, right? And there are a lot of mountains in the middle. And then there's a coastline down to the Mediterranean. So everything moves down. And, and so when, in the times of the year when the rains come, those ravines that run all the way down to the coastline through the mountain crags, they've been dry and arid and you can't find any vegetation there. Suddenly they're filled with torrents of water rushing down to the sea, right? So the picture here is the dry and parched land that was lifeless is now experiencing an outpouring of living water that's producing abundant life everywhere all around, Restore us like streams in the Negev. Remember that this is a a breathed out prayer of God's people who once were in exile and now have come back into the land. And so the heart is to recognize the situation is uh, improved in terms of their circumstances. But that doesn't always mean that the heart is in tune with the heart of God. Right? God can improve your circumstances. It doesn't mean that the heart of worship has come online yet. And he can't. He can do that. He does do that. God does improve our circumstances. But a heart that is saved and redeemed in the spirit, right? That, that's a communion with God in prayer. That's a different thing. So verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap 
with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Here's the promise. Here's the promise of God. So there there are three things here. There's the task of the sower, there are the tears of the sower, and then there's the triumph of the sower. But don't miss the, the, the part that's inconsistent in all of those, is that we're called to do what? Sow, seed, right? So you go back to Jesus in Matthew 13, and he tells some kingdom parables. There are seven in the chapter. And the first one is the parable of the, anybody? Sower, that's right. The parable of the sower. He says, and this person went out to sow seed, this, this particular farmer, and, and as he sowed the seed, which is the gospel, Jesus would explain later to his disciples, the, the seed of the gospel, he's scattering it all over, and some of it fell on hard ground, a path where people had walked and they'd trodden the ground down and it couldn't really get down in the ground. It says, and the birds of the air came and they, they took the seed and they, they, it didn't even have a chance right? He says, some of the seed that was being sown fell onto uh, thorny ground. There were weeds and thorns and thistles, and those things grew up with the seed, but then they choked it out. It couldn't really get to where it needed to be before it was choked out. Some of that seed fell into soil, but it was shallow. The soil was so shallow that it couldn't put down really deep roots. And when the sun came up with its scorching heat, those plants just kind of withered away and they died. He said there was a fourth kind of soil. It was a good soil, and it had been tilled, and it was ready to receive the seed. And when it fell in, it took root there, and it grew up, and it produced fruit. Some of it 30, 60, even 100-fold, it produced fruit. And you go, okay, so if you're a farmer living in an agrarian society, right, pre-industrial revolution, what is the point of seed? What do you want to get? food. You want to harvest. You want it to yield a crop, right? Not only so you can feed your family, but so you can trade some of that away and get the other things that you need to be, uh, be responsible for what God's entrusted to you. So that's an important distinction. There are four types of soil. And only one produced a crop. Only one yielded fruit. So the soil that uh, Jesus said fell on the, the hard path. He says the birds were the messengers of the evil one. They came right in, they swooped in, and they took it away. You, you, you've probably seen this. You've shared the gospel with somebody. You've loved them. You've talked to them about Jesus. And then, and then the, Satan just does something in their heart, and then they're just, he takes them away. He takes the gospel away, or he takes them away from the gospel, and it's just a disconnect. And then they're back into some other thing that's destructive in their life, and that you can't ever seem to get that connection of the gospel in their heart, right? And then there's some people we share the gospel with and we, and we, we share Jesus with, and then it's that uh, thorny soil. And, they, and they're like, yeah, I, I can see how Jesus would be really important. I should consider these things. And, I, and I'm thinking about this, but then um, their finances or worldly pursuits or the things of this world, the cares of this world become more important to them. And they say, I don't, I don't have time for Jesus. I've got to take care of this. Or I, don't, I can't worry about Jesus. I've got to worry about my portfolio. Or I've got to, right? And so that, what happens is those thorns just choke that out. And then there's that, that third type of soil, there's that shallow soil, and the, the seed fell in, and it looked like it was going to do really well. And the thing about soil is you really can't see what's under it, right? And there's this bedrock, and it couldn't put down roots. And James makes the point that the sun, the scorching heat, is um, God allows trials and hardship in our lives. The funny thing about plants is they need what? 
They need sunlight. They photosynthesize. So, so he's kind of put us in this really awkward, hard, undesirable at times position where we need hardship. We, we need the sunshine to grow as, as God's people. But what happens to people who aren't deeply rooted when those hardships come, they wither and there's no fruit. And then there's that fourth soil. There's that fourth soil. Only one bore fruit. It's the whole point of agriculture. Not to look nice, but to yield a harvest, right? And so we come to the tears of the sower. This is the reality for anybody who follows Jesus, who takes seriously the Great Commission, that we are to, to make disciples of all nations. We are to share the gospel with people and love them and to present Jesus to them, right? Maybe not all at once the first time you meet them, but at some point, incrementally, over time, they, they get into our lives and we get into their lives and they start to understand that we're followers of Jesus. And, and then we see them reject that in some way. They're one of the first three types of soil and you don't know that right away. You just live life together and then after a while you begin to see, oh, this is really, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to be in relationship with people. It's heartbreaking uh, this week even having lunch with with a friend and, and hearing her talk about uh, an online ministry and, and people she didn't even know going, I hate what you have to say and I'm glad that I'm going to hell. That's heartbreaking. When Jesus lives in you and you have the Holy Spirit in you and and people reject the gospel, it is agonizing. Especially when you're putting yourself out there. You're putting yourself out there and you're you're inviting rejection, right? And so we've got this equation in our heads as, as Christians, as Christ followers. We think, okay, if I share the gospel or if I start to talk about Jesus and my love for Jesus... Three things could happen, right? People could respond to that positively and say, man, I I really want to know Jesus. Would you tell me more? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Put that in the positive category. Second option, people hear what you have to say about Jesus and they go, I'm not rejecting that, but I need to think about it. I'm undecided. Okay, you go, well, that's, that's positive. That's still in the positive category. Let's put that over here, right? And then you go, third option, they hear what you have to say about Jesus, and they go, not interested. And so we put that over here in the negative category. You say, negative, right? That's no good. So, so right off the bat, what we're dealing with is 66%. The chances are 66% that you're going to get a positive response. And only like 34% that you're going to get a negative response. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Most of us don't. Well, if we play basketball, like I don't shoot that high a percentage even from the floor, right? I can't hit 66% of the time when I play ball, right? So whatever it is you do, you're probably not like that good at it. That's a good return. But there's, but there's this fear about the 33%, 34%, the rejection. Let me, Jesus lets you off the hook. Can I just let you off the hook? He said, blessed are you when people reject you for my name's sake. When they hate what you have to say, when they persecute you for it, when they reject you and they say, I don't have anything to do with that, you're an idiot, go away. Or whether it's a soft rejection, they say, no, I'm not really interested. That's a, that's a blessed place to be, Jesus says. There's a blessing there for us because we've been acting in faith. So then, so you take the rejection piece and you move it out of the negative category, put it back over here in the positive category because you are blessed when people reject you. Not that you get to be jerks for Jesus. Okay, when they reject you because you're a jerk... That doesn't count. That's back here in the negative category, okay? But when, you, when you've loved people well and you've shared the gospel clearly and, you, and you've communicated a heart of love and they say, no, go away, 
I don't like you and I don't want Jesus. That goes in the positive category. Great is your reward in heaven. You get rewards for that. You're blessed for that. That's crazy. So, so the sower goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, knowing that some of it's going to fall in bad places. It's not all going to bear fruit. We know that as we share the gospel, not everybody's going to respond in faith. But then he comes back home when that's all grown up and the harvest happens and he's bringing the sheaves bound up, bundles of grain back to the threshing floor. There is joy in the harvest. There is joy. And I love this unparalleled joy in the harvest here and the the triumph of the sower. He says, our tongues were filled with shouts of joy, verse 2, and also here. And other translations, other, other versions of this say songs of joy. Right? Not shouts of joy, but, but if it's singing, it's the kind of singing that uh, raises the roof off of a sports stadium, right? It's just masses of people singing to God in uh, uproar. It's the fist pumping when the Seahawks score a touchdown, right? Or maybe you're a Sounders fan and it's a goal. And, uh, and, and seismic monitors in Seattle register that, right? You know that. Like that happens. We're rabid people when it comes to sports. We should be rabid people when it comes to Jesus. And so here's the application. So we look at this psalm and we we just look at this and go, okay, God took his covenant people from a bad circumstance to a good circumstance. He changed their situation in this life. And so so we'll say this, God can and does redeem people out of their circumstances, but not always and not as a rule, right? You start saying that's the always thing, you just need to go to Joel Osteen's church. Okay, that's the prosperity gospel. If you think the point of the gospel is God's going to improve my life circumstance, that's not the gospel. Now, he does that sometimes. He does improve our circumstances. He does bring relief. He does bring us into seasons of abundance and joy. But that's not an always promise in this life, right? When we see a principle or a truth in the Bible, it's often applied on a spectrum, right? I'll give you an example. God heals sickness, Okay. God heals sickness. At the cross, Jesus purchased healing at the cross for his people. Now, yes, sometimes in this life, on this end of the spectrum, healing happens. It's a funny thing, though. Everybody that gets healed in this life still dies. Right? 10 out of 10 people. It's a crazy statistic. Um, that happens, and then, but on the other end of the spectrum, there's a fullness of the principle that comes to fruition that's only found in eternity with Jesus. And I've been in the hospital room with family and, 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 and then people I didn't even know that their family asked me to be there. And I've had these conversations to say, listen, the healing that you're praying for may only come in, the, in, the, in glory. God will heal you. He will heal you fully. But it may, may not be in this life. All right? And so there's a spectrum. No promise uh, of this redeemed out of my circumstances in this life. That's not a promise for now, but it is a promise. And you will be redeemed out of your circumstance, right? So let, let, me, let me tell you a story to give you a correct view of this idea. There was this little orphan boy who was living with his grandmother. His parents had died. So he's living with his grandmother when the, gra- the grandmother's house caught fire one night. And the, the grandmother was trying desperately to get upstairs to rescue the little boy as the house was burning. And she perished in the flames. And the boy's cries for help were finally answered by a man who had climbed up an old iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. He was clinging to him, right? 
So, so weeks go by and there's this public hearing to determine who's going to get custody of the child. And so at the, at the hearing was a farmer, a teacher, and the town's wealthiest citizen. And they're all before the judge and they're all giving reasons why they felt like they should be the one to be chosen to give a home to the little boy. But as they all talked about this, the, the little boy's eyes just kind of down on the floor. He's not looking at anybody. He's just, he's down. And then as the judge is getting ready to render a decision, a stranger walked to the, to the front and slowly removed his hands from the pockets. And all over his hands were scars, were burn scars. And, and the crowd gasped and the boy cried out in recognition. It was the man who had saved his life. His hands had been burned so severely as he climbed up and back down that hot pipe. And so the, the boy leapt up and he just threw his arms around the man. And it was clear to everybody in the room, like the issue settled at this point. He's going to live with this person, right? That's the idea of redemption. That's, that's what we have in Christ Jesus. We have someone who bears the scars of the pain that he went to to rescue us out of our circumstance. And, and so we may not get the fullness of that right now, but we are going to get the fullness of that. We're going to go live with him. We get to go live with him forever. And so there may be an interim period right now. We've got to go through some hard stuff. The knowledge of that reality of what's to come ought to give us the unction and the wherewithal to endure here. And it ought to fill our mouths with laughter and with joyful shouting, especially when we're together as the people of God and we ascend into his presence and we come to worship him. Man, many voices call for our attention. Among them in our culture is one whose nail-pierced hands remind us that he has rescued us from sin, right? And to him belong our love and our devotion, so salvation is Jesus, salvation in Jesus is the fullest form of this principle in action. He will redeem us out of our circumstance. And here's the other one. We are called to sow and to reap. We are called to sow and to reap. You may not have the gift of evangelism. So what? There are a lot of gifts that I don't have. Right? I don't have the gift of finances. I don't have the gift of generating great wealth. I don't have the gift of administration. Right now in this season of my life, I do a lot of administration because it needs to be done, right? There's some things that just need to be done. There's a, this whole thing, the Great Commission. It's funny because the wording there in Matthew 28 says, go into all the world making disciples of all nations, but only if you have the gift of evangelism. Right? said so no Bible translation ever. It's just this blanket call to all believers in all places at all times to share the gospel and to share the love of Christ. There will be tears of hardship as you walk in faith. There will be pain. There will be agony. Some of it related to your gospel sharing. Some of it just related to life in a fallen world. Let me tell you what else there will be. There will be laughter and there will be celebration and there'll be moments of pure joy and elation. Hey, you just can't believe how good God has been to you. It's spectacular. The agony and the burdens of this life will be forever exchanged with the unparalleled joy of glory for all eternity. Uh, Dr. James Merritt, big in the South, in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention growing up, he's a big name there. It doesn't mean anything probably to anybody here, but... Um, I love the story he tells about this. He says, a man joined my church. I'll just read, I'll read it because I'll mangle it if I don't read it. 
A man joined my church and had, had been a member there for a while, and he came up to me after one Sunday morning service. He pulled me aside. He asked me if I'd go visit his wife. Well, it's funny because I didn't even know he was married. He never wore a wedding ring, and I'd never met his wife. But I told him I would go. Her name was Diane. He told me that she was a confirmed atheist and that she hated preachers. That would be really exciting to be asked to go there. But by that time, I had already promised to go. He said I had no choice. On Tuesday night, my wife and I went to visit with Diane. Now, to say the least, she was extremely cool in her reception of me. She let me know that she was an atheist, that she did not like preachers. But she did agree to let me come in for five minutes. So I got to work in a hurry. I said to her, Diane, do you know for sure that if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? She says, I don't believe in heaven. I told you, I'm an atheist. He said, so, so are, are you telling me that there's no God? She said, that's right. Dr. Merritt said, well, well, let me ask you a question. Do you know everything that there is to know about everything? She was quiet for a moment. She said, well, of course not. He said, well, let me, let me be generous. Would you say that you know just maybe half of everything that there is to know about everything? She said, no, I don't, I don't think I would even claim to know half of all the knowledge. He said, well, let's just pretend like you do. Let's just say that you do. Now, here's half the knowledge that you do have, and over here is the other half of the knowledge that you don't have. Would you agree with me that God could exist over here in the part of the knowledge that you don't have? And she stopped for a moment. She said, I never, I never thought about that before. He said, well, I don't know. Uh, no, she, she said, then she said, excuse me, I don't know if there's a God or not. And he said, well, now we're, we're getting somewhere. You're not an atheist. You're actually an agnostic. She smiled and she said, oh, that's right. Yes, I'm, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. And he said, I didn't have the heart to tell her the Latin word for agnostic is ignoramus. <laughs> now, now, he said, I want to ask you this question. Are you an honest agnostic or are you a dishonest agnostic? And she said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, an honest agnostic says, I don't know whether there's a God or not, but I want to find out. A dishonest agnostic says, I don't know whether there's a God or not, and I don't really want to know. Which one are you? She said, I'm an honest agnostic. He said, good, all right. He went out and went to his car, and he got a little paperback New Testament. He brought it in, and he handed it to her. He says, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to begin reading every day one chapter from the Gospel of John. She said, I don't believe the Bible. He said, no, I get that, but I want you to do it anyway. She said, it's not going to do any good. He said, I get it, right? Just, just please, one chapter, read out of the Gospel of John. And then he said, as you read the Gospel of John, I want you to ask two questions every time you read a chapter. Who did Jesus claim to be, and what are you going to do about it? I said, do you understand what I'm asking you to do? She said, yes. I said, there are 21 chapters in John. If you read one chapter a day, that's three weeks worth of reading. I will not be back, and you will not hear from me for three weeks. But when I come back and see you, I want you to have read the Gospel of John, and we can talk about how you're doing. He said, that Sunday morning, so that was Tuesday, he said, that Sunday I got up to give the invitation after the sermon. And the first person walking down the aisle of my church crying huge tears was Diane. Just to show you how much faith I had, I said, why have you come? She said, I've come to be baptized. I said, well, that Diane, that's great. But you have to be saved before you can be baptized. And she said, I have been. And he said, when? He said, Wednesday morning. I didn't get fast past the first chapter in John's gospel. God moved. You just, listen, you don't know. You don't know how God's going to use you. Militant atheist, or so she thought. And God used 
the faith of a pastor to to just lead her to Jesus. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So, so all in the win category, positive response, neutral response, negative response. You know what's in the negative category? When we don't walk in faith, when we don't share our faith, when we don't talk about the Christ that we follow, that's in the negative category. That's the lose. That's the lose. If we, if we will go and sow, God will give the increase. I love, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted the seed. Apollos came and he watered the seed, but you know who caused the growth? It was God. God, there's a, there's a work of God that he does that we can't do, but we have to be faithful to do our part. If you don't plant seeds, there can't be a harvest. You won't, you won't see everybody that you witness to or you share the gospel with or you love uh, with Jesus. They, they won't all be saved, but God will save some for his glory. And there will be souls in heaven because of your faithfulness. So we've got to walk in faith, folks. In fact, if your parents and your kids are here today with you, the clipboards that they have, we've gotten really sly about making sure that you're talking about these things all week. There's some questions there that we're deliberately adding to the kid clipboard that um, we want them to ask you as parents this week, maybe even on the ride home. So here's what you should expect. Let me just give you the questions. Uh, These are designed for you to discuss this week together as a family. I I put these on the, the clipboard. What does the word redemption mean? Parents, if you don't know, go look it up because your kid's going to ask you. I can't wait for them to ask you these questions. As followers of Jesus, what does it mean to sow and to reap? Here's my favorite. Read verse 2 again as a family. Why is, why is there not more joy and laughter and shouting in church? That's a great one to talk about this week, right? What does it mean to sow and reap? Remember that this is a psalm of ascent. What was true of them geographically should be true of us spiritually, right? Every day our lives ought to be moving up. Every day of our life we're getting closer and closer to the Lord. I believe his return is very soon. I love the old hymn that I used to sing growing up in church. And maybe you know this hymn. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. You know it? By faith on heaven's table end, a higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. You know the chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel, the seed that you've given us to sow. Lord, we want to be those who go out with seed for sowing. And we know that we're going to shed some tears in the process. We go out weeping, bearing that seed for sowing. We will expect to come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with us, bringing the harvest with us. Lord, would you give us the honor of participating in your harvest? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.